Oh, well, we are on another episode today, the Blossom of Thought podcast, and my guest today is Oliver Vizacro from the State Bar of Michigan, a lawyer and a life coach, and his co-author at the bestseller network and anthropological work that she did with 19 other highly motivated women attorneys from all over the U.S. Olivia's spent most of her time in her coaching boutique where she supports lawyers who find themselves overwhelmed, overworked, overstressed. I guess that's just a definition sometimes of legal practice. Olivia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to be here. I'm, I'm so happy to have you here. We I thrilled that you will come in here and tell us about your story, about your life. I found out that a lot of our guests have got so much to, to, to say, and we believe that your story will be highly motivational to other women out there. Let us go back, as far as background is concerned, tell us about an Italian young girl of eight years and about her love for or fascination with the mafia. And Scrappy Doo versus Scooby Doo. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's so funny. Um, Scooby, I was an only child and I wasn't allowed to have pets. So I became obsessed with dogs, Scooby Doo in particular. Um, but to take us back to the time where I was eight, I grew up with a really proud Italian grandfather. And he was kind of always parroting or saying around, you know, just how proud he was to be Italian, how important it was that we were Italian. And I really internalized that. And I was at a, a book fair in elementary school and there was a book on the shelf and it said Italian, it was about Al Capone, um, mm. the Chicago mob boss, but it was about the Italian American mafia. And all I saw was the word Italian. So immediately I was fascinated. And it was of course like the watered down, you know, kids version of what organized crime was. So I ended up purchasing the book. I read it and started to just become fascinated with the Italian mob and organized crime. And I just knew that if it was Italian, it was the right thing for me at the time. And begged my mom. I saw a commercial for a documentary. I think it was on the History Channel about the Italian mafia in the United States, basically from the time that you know they immigrated here from Italy through Prohibition and then the turf wars during the 1940s all through kind of up to modern day, but like the Rico indictments, which, you know, started to come down pretty heavily after the wiretaps in the sixties and seventies. And I begged my mom that, we, it, you know, can we watch it? When I was young, but she was like, yeah, sure. We can watch it. No big deal. She's like, it's historical. What, what harm can it do? And sure enough, we watch it. And while they're going through the phase of history where all the Rico indictments start coming down from the FBI, there was an attorney who advised his client, who was one of the heads of the five families in New York, to put on a bathrobe and walk around the streets of New York like he was crazy and to talk to himself. And it worked. He evaded getting charged and indicted for like a decade. And I got done watching the documentary and I looked at my mom and I was a precocious eight-year-old, believe it or not. And I said to her, I was like, mom, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to be a lawyer guy because the lawyer guy helps the good guys stay away from the bad guys. And she's like, no, 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 no. You've got this all wrong. So I'd reverse it. <laughs> reverse it, right? <laughs> uh, the mobster guys are not the good guys. The FBI guys aren't the bad guys. It's not good that the lawyer guy helped the mobster. Like all of this is just incorrect. 
And I was like, no, I think I've really got this right. And she's like, you'll grow out of it. And I never did. From that moment on, I wanted to be a criminal defense attorney for the Italian mafia and knew I wanted to go to law school from that point forward. And everything was really laid out from there. Um, I never wavered. So worked a ton growing up, but that was always the, the end goal that I had in, you know, in my sights. How has your mom impacted your life? Like I haven't heard anything about your father, but you're just talking about your mom. That's why I'm asking about your mom first. Yeah, um, she she's my biggest cheerleader by far. Um, always has been. Even with me switching the work that I do now from lawyering to coaching, um, I, I think there's no one who's been more supportive than her. She's definitely always the person who's like, of course you can do it, you know, go after anything that you want. Uh, really been my biggest cheerleader. I would say her and I are the closest out of uh, the three. I'm an only child, so it's just me and my parents. Um, her and I are the closest. We spent the most time together growing up, so I'm a lot like her. People always say that I'm like the spitting image of her, that we have the same mannerisms, the same uh, kind of personality same characteristics um my my love of cooking i got from her we we now like split the holiday cooking uh 50 50 and kind of team up but i learned that from her my dad doesn't cook at all so my italian grandfather and then my scottish mother i've, I've gotten my cooking uh cooking credentials from it seems like united nations the scottish mother and italian yeah. It's all the European connection. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Correct. So we're on the table, we have uh, Italian pasta, pizza, and whatnot, all this kind of Italian food, and also Scottish food. Um, that... She doesn't cook a ton of Scottish food. Um, she worked for a Jewish woman um, for years in a patisserie. Mm -hmm. and so she's an exceptional baker. She, I can't bake. She can bake. Um, but she makes a lot of like traditional American food, um, like pot roast, um, different chicken dish. She has this basil pesto cream sauce with grilled chicken with pot. Oh my God. It's so good. It's one of my favorite things to eat. She's very, very talented. So I'm still learning tricks from her. I'm drooling. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I can already visualize this nice meal. <laughs> so good. <laughs> so uh, when you were at law school, you had about uh, three jobs, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, trying to think how did she get through all this? <laughs> law school by itself is no joke. It's no child's play. I've just uh, finished my master's uh, degree in law at uh, the Brigham Young University just uh, in our um, I mean, down from Salt Lake City in Provo. And there was so much to read. I've been an attorney before then in Africa, where I come from. So I know that's not a joke. And to still have three jobs while you're going through law school, that's fascinating to me. How did that happen? Yeah, so I started working a ton um, in undergrad. And I bought a house when I was really young. So really never even had the mind. I moved out very young. I was bartending at the time and could afford it. And then I started picking up other jobs. I started my own business. It was a personal assistant business and that spawned into other opportunities. So I was bartending 
And um, I worked at a police department for the chief of police as kind of an executive assistant to him. And then also did book work, uh, accounting stuff for another local business owner. And that kept me busy through most of undergrad. I just had always worked. And then once I had my own house, then it was just obviously not even a question of whether I would or not. It just kind of became the norm. And I, when I was applying to law school, I started to see that there were evening opportunities. And from my bartending days, I had already been an evening person anyways. Most of it was done unintentionally, but the last couple of years of undergrad for me, I went to school at night because I would bartend and I wouldn't get home until really late. And I just became kind of a night owl going to bed really early in the morning. And then I'd wake up early afternoon and then go to class at night. So I had already kind of been on that system and that really worked for me. So I had been looking around and I was concerned about having to go full-time to law school because I had a mortgage to pay. I had, you know, financial responsibility and I'm on my own. So it's not like I have anyone there to offset any of those expenses. So uh, I went to Wayne State University here in Detroit and they had an evening program, uh, which I applied to. And I was fortunate enough to receive a full scholarship to go there. So it really worked out to be the, the best of both worlds. So I started law school. I was still working three jobs and I did that for about the first almost first full two years, but first like year and a half at least. And then the chief of police that I was working for introduced me to my former boss, who was the managing partner of a criminal defense firm who handled really high stakes felony trial work, which was exactly what I wanted to do. My passion was criminal defense. He introduced me to a major player in the criminal defense industry here in Detroit. And it was like the match made in heaven. So I went in and the interview was like very impromptu. I ended up speaking to him on the phone. He's like, can you come in this afternoon for an interview? And I was like, oh goodness, I'm not prepared for that. But yeah, I guess so. I'm like, I'll be there. And he's like, can you be here in an hour? Like I needed to go home and put a suit on. Right. So I'm like, can't be there in an hour, but I can be there in like Seems like we are freezing. Oh yeah, go ahead. You were talking about your match made in heaven. Uh, this uh, yeah. interview that you you were about to have with a, a criminal defense attorney. So I say no. I've just been working. You know, ever since I was fourteen, I never played sports. He goes, "You've been working since you were 14 I'm like, "Yeah, nonstop." And for the past, you know, several years, multiple jobs. And he's like, "Oh, I think I'm willing to make an exception." He goes, when do you want to start? I thought I was just in interviewing for like a summer internship. And it was in March that we were having this conversation. So I thought not until after finals at the end of April, early May, you know, I'm just going to work there for the summer. And I'm like, I don't know, like after final exams. And he's like, well, when are final exams? And I'm like, end of April, early May. And he's like, oh, I meant like tomorrow. <laughs> and I looked at him and I was like, I have three jobs. He goes, no, you don't. Now you have one. <laughs> and sure enough, I showed up in the morning ready to go. And I uh, quit bartending almost immediately. I worked a couple more shifts, but I wrapped that up uh, really quickly. And then I did accounting work for the one place on Saturdays 
for like the next two months until they could find a replacement. And I worked for the chief of police. I did payroll for the police department and a couple other uh, odd tasks, like in the middle of the night from my office at the law firm. So <clears throat> I really burnt the candle at both ends for a while, but I made the transition. And then I started um, really being like a second hand on really substantial felony trials. So I had a blast through the rest of law school doing that work. I learned so much. I can't, I tell students all the time now, uh, there's such a rush to go through law school in three years as an evening student, you have a little bit more time, normally like four, four and a half, five years to go through. And I don't understand what the rush is because when you just go through without having any of these, you know, long-term, it's not just the summer internship where like you get to know everyone and then the summer's over. I was there for years. So I became so entrenched in the work and the cases. And I learned so much because of that. I really tell students all the time, take advantage. You can slow play the educational part of it and get all of these different, you know, diverse opportunities that you wouldn't have otherwise, if you're just taking an internship in a three month segment, I think it can be really powerful. Uh, I've spoken to a number of uh, students at Brigham Young University, the law students, that is, and you'll find that some say, I hate constitutional law. Oh, I hate property law or torts. It seems like you made your mind so early in your life that you wanted to be a criminal. I'm sorry that assisted you in course selection and deciding what to major on and uh, going forward all the way to practice. But I'm sure that you also hated some causes and what? Oh my goodness. <laughs> so as an evening student, your first full year was broken up into two years. And my first year, all of the good classes were postponed for my second year. So my first year was legal research and writing a full year, contract law, ugh, full year, <laughs> and civil procedure, ugh, a full year. So it was, I, I got done with my first year after course, just only taking courses that I hated with a passion. My aunt and uncle both work for law schools. My uncle is a law professor. I called them at the end of my first year. I was so mad at both of them. I'm like, you didn't warn me. Both <laughs> of you knew. Both of you know how boring these classes are. It's awful. I just hated it. And then I, I really, I, it was like such a crisis for me because here I've been since I was eight, only wanting to ever do this. And now I'm in law school and I'm like, this is the worst. I can't stand this stuff. And then really didn't have any idea of like what else I would do at the time. My bachelor's is in journalism and journalists tend to be starving artists for the most part, which didn't really interest me too much. Uh, so I was like, I really don't have another backup plan. I guess I'm going to have to finish law school, but I hate it. And my second year, I started criminal law and I was like, here we go. This is the game. This yeah, is it. This is the game. I couldn't take evidence fast enough. I knew that that was really, you know, the, the meat and potatoes of like criminal defense trial work, knowing the rules of evidence, knowing hearsay exceptions, knowing how to get evidence excluded, all of that. Cause it's so much of what I was doing. Um, I really saw, I knew it was important to begin with cause I had like read books and stuff like that. And like what you need to take and how to prepare in law school if you want to be a criminal defense attorney. But then I started seeing it 
in real time when I was working as a law clerk and I just couldn't get there fast enough. Uh, my friends still call me all the time. If they have hearsay questions, I'm like, bring it, let's talk it through. And they'll like get really, really stuck on a point. And I'm like, no, it's this, like, that's not hearsay or it is. And we'll, or that would be excluded, you know, under 404B and we'll go back and forth, but I'm still a go-to resource for close friends. It's like my favorite thing to argue. I'm like, if you want to, I'll talk till you're blue in the face about the rules of evidence. It's still my favorite. Is there any case that you had to deal with where you had to object on the ground of hearsay evidence? I'm trying to think. Um, what would have been the biggest argument? Yeah, the last homicide trial we did, uh, we had really bad rulings from a judge, um, but it was we had double hearsay it, that ended up being admitted. Um, but we we argued as as strenuously as we could uh to no avail i think the decision to admit it will be overturned uh on appeal but we'll see what happens with that i think it's easy from practice obviously it's easy sometimes to be so immersed in the case such that you can easily pass or let evidence that is hearsay get into the record and you don't realize it. What advice would you have for attorneys to stay awake? The young attorneys were coming after you. What's my advice to them? Avoiding hearsay evidence getting into the record because it's easy. It's easy. I, I, I know that from experience and you have to deal with that on appeal or whatnot. No, I agree. I think um, there's a really, uh, one of my law school professors, he's actually the professor who taught evidence, um, to us. He had a checklist. So like going through as a spreadsheet of like the evidence that you want to admit and going through, like, is there hearsay? Is there an exception to the rule of hearsay? Or are you admitting it for, um, a non hearsay reason other than for the truth of the matter asserted, right? So going through and walk that through in your mind, it, it's so cum it's such a cumbersome process, but I think you need to slow down outside of the moment and also look at, I mean, anything that's in writing, text messages are the biggest situation um, that I see come up now that people are going to testify to what was said in text messages. That's what just happened in uh, the last homicide case that I worked on. A lot of what was discussed in text messages that all of that was admitted. That's all hearsay, right? Unless it's the person who's in the witness stand who, you know, is saying it right then and there, then it's from a declarant who wasn't in court when they were saying it. So I think looking at um, those modern day communications that we're not quite used to dealing with, right? It's not, you know, a written piece of paper. So it looks a little bit different. Um, and I think the case law isn't as straightforward or isn't as specifically on point just because the law hasn't developed enough. So to be cognizant of those areas and you're going to have to educate your judges. Well, you did not only practice, or maybe let me still talk about uh, criminal law. Well, did you ever have some kind of baptism of fire? You know, sometimes we, as you do legal practice, sometimes you get so oh, much yeah. challenged and you, you you get one of those uppercuts, knockouts, and you feel like, 
I'm done with this. I'm going home. Never being an attendee. Um, I did. It wasn't never. I never want to do this. I'm going home. Um, I'll, I have two memories. Uh, one, this was when I was still a law clerk. It was. It was the first substantial trial I did. It was a rape case with three victims um, and kind of like a prostitution situation. Mm-hmm. Um, we were defending one of the one of the defendants. There were multiple defendants. And the person that I was working for, he cross-examined one of the alleged victims. And she had been, um, she had lied to the prosecutor about her kids being present on a certain occasion. And she had lied because if the prosecutor found out that her kids were present while she was prostituting herself, the prosecutor is a mandatory reporter and he would have to report to child protective services. And it's exculpatory evidence for us because it goes to character evidence, right? Have you, you know, previously lied, um, you know, made untruthful statements, whatever. And so my, my boss impeached her on this point. And it, for whatever reason, I'm pretty unemotional when it comes to cases, but that one got to me. She started crying on the stand and I kept it together in court. Um, but when we got, when we were done for the day, I, it was just so, cause she was terrified. She's like, I'm going to lose my kids. Right. And she's testifying about this awful crime that allegedly happened to her. And we're there putting on the best defense for a client possible. I understand that. But as a woman, it was, it was really hard. I, I got in my car afterwards and I cried and then showed up the next day and, you know, went full force again. But that one really got to me. Uh, I'd say true baptism by fire. The last homicide case I worked on, I got a phone call while I was driving to court in the morning that told me to turn around, that we needed coverage on a completely different case. Um, we had a preliminary examination and which is like taking testimony from witnesses, cross-examining witnesses. I knew, I didn't know who the client was. I didn't know anything about the case. Uh, we had just been retained on it the day before and we couldn't get it postponed. And it was like scheduled to start at 9 a.m. I couldn't even get down there fast enough, but it was like, you have to go handle this. And I'd never done a preliminary examination before. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm, I'm, I have all this stuff for trial. Like I have four, you know, bankers boxes worth of documents for court for this trial that we're in today. That's been going on for three weeks. What do you mean you're sending me to a different court? And they were like, yeah, we just, there's no one else to go. You have to go do it. So I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to do a prelim by myself. Let's go. And I went and I did great. It was fine. But it was one of those moments where like it happened so fast. I didn't even have time to like really freak out about it. Um, but a lot of the attorneys that I've worked for learned that way too, where they're like, here's the file. Good luck to you. Uh, so that was, that was a baptism by fire moment too, that I thankfully survived and the clients survived. It all went well, but. It's interesting how practice seems to be the same everywhere. Cause <laughs> I come from in Africa. It's the same thing. <laughs> they do the same <laughs> thing. Given, oh yeah. The same thing. Given the file, oh, run to court. Yeah. One time I had to run to court. My principal, we call them principals, those who don't you 
your legal practice. And then he said, I, I need you to go and not judgment in court. Well, I, I, I don't know if the same language that you use here, whenever okay. the court has to deliver judgment, you have to be there as an attorney representing the accused. This guy has been charged um, with an offense of, is it murder or homicide? Okay. So when I got there, I, <laughs> the man was convicted 18 years. And <laughs> for my first time to deal with such first situation, time. I was so devastated. <laughs> I felt like, oh my word. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I saw the guy almost going to tears and was trying to, you know, you know how clients they think you are lifesavers, you are gods, you can yeah, never yeah. go to me, you have to get it right all the time. Anyways, moving from that, I want to find out, you know, uh, as you work with witnesses, there are times where a witness can mess up a case for you. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've had that experience and uh, would you have anything to say about that? Yeah, I think you have to plan. I've had it go both ways. Mm -hmm. I've had it go where it's totally unexpected, but it works in your favor. And those are really lucky days where you think someone's going to say all the wrong things and then they end up not saying all the wrong things. Um, I've had depositions uh, when I was doing civil work um, where witnesses said were really, really difficult. Um, And I think those are the most frustrating ones. At least it's the hardest to work around. I took one deposition and the person was supposed to be a records custodian for a government agency. And the way that the rules work, like you give them notice of the topics beforehand. So they are supposed to do all the research on these topics because their I don't know is imputed to the agency. So if you ask them about it, they're supposed to know. Like if there's information to be known, they're supposed to know it. And this person, I don't know, it must have been a tactic, but the person just showed up and said, I don't know to every single question. And I had all of these questions that I wanted to ask. And like after 10 minutes of just getting, I don't know, it's about every, like what's the point of continuing, right? So that was probably the most infuriating experience I've had because I really just felt like at a loss. Like, I don't know where to go from here. The person was so difficult. It wasn't even that like they were giving me little morsels of information, but really just stonewalling me. And I learned that uh, that was something that had never, I'd never been really prepared for at any point in any of my training. I survived it. It wasn't delightful, but it was a good learning experience. But, um, trying to make the best record you can. I think this works, whether it's a civil deposition, a civil trial or a criminal trial, trying to make the best record you can under the circumstance and to go from there. Also to not ask the final question. I think people really like those big Perry Mason moments. Um, But knowing when to not go for the ultimate conclusion, because they'll probably give you the answer that you don't want versus the one that you do. It's been my experience. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, b- before I jump into civil law practice, because it seems like you were wading through mud there. You didn't like the whole experience. <laughs> um, you, you, you had um, a defendant, a criminal defendant, almost 26 years in prison for homicide he did not do. Mm-hmm. What happened there? I'm still How did on you it. rescue the situation? I'm still on that case right now. Oh. Oh, well, I, I, there's a, a legal, uh, in legal parlance, we say 
uh, what do we say when the case is still going on? We don't have much to say about it. We don't comment on it. I, I don't know if that's the case. So we can go ahead and talk about something else. Oh, the yeah. case is subjudicate. We say subjudicate mm. means it's still going on in court. So we don't we, we don't have much to say until it is concluded. We are so it's a different situation. Um, where what we're doing right now really isn't challenging the underlying conviction, even though, in my own personal opinion, based on the the record, the evidence that we have, he didn't commit the crime. He was 16 when he was accused of committing um, a double homicide with other people involved at the scene. Um, but he was sentenced as a, a juvenile, which has since been ruled an unconstitutional sentence. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And our mm -hmm. Supreme Court has since ruled that that is an unconstitutional sentence and that he's entitled to be resentenced. Michigan has one of the highest number of juvenile lifer um, prisoners in the country, which is extraordinarily tragic. And Detroit being that that's the, you know, the largest population here and constitutes for, you know, more than its fair share of criminal convictions and criminal activity and, and criminal cases throughout the state of Michigan. The largest number of juvenile lifers that are entitled to be resentenced come from the county that Detroit sits in. And unfortunately, the county has been moving at a snail's pace uh, to process these resentencing hearings. So we're currently fighting with the prosecutor's office, um, trying to get a reduced um, sentence to get them to not seek life without parole again. They have the opportunity to ask for the same exact sentence. We don't think it's called for at all in our case, um, but we're currently going through the process of litigating that. Hopefully it will be resolved uh, this year. Miller v. Alabama came down in 2012 and Montgomery came down in 2016, which ruled that Miller was retroactive. So therefore it applied to my client's case. So it's 2021 now we're, we're ready to have him resentenced. But the prosecutor's office here has moved very slowly, unfortunately, and COVID has not helped matters at all. So hopefully we get some traction soon. Martin Luther King is attributed with, I mean, uh, these words are attributed to Martin Luther King where he says, the arc of justice is long, mm. but it bends towards bends. justice. It, is it bending towards justice in the court system that you are working in? Mm. I'm going to sound so pessimistic if I say no. <laughs> uh, but I... It's a long arc, like a long arc. So it's a long, <laughs> a long, arc. long, long moral arc. Yeah. But so much it's heading towards justice. Somewhere. I mean, we have really, we, we now live in um, an era in our court system in Michigan where our Supreme Court is relatively liberal which if you're doing criminal defense work is like the best news that you could ever possibly get. We've had a conservative court for a while. We have a pretty conservative um, court of appeals level and now our Supreme Court is liberal. So to get relief, um, 
we so there are certain things that I, I do think are and we we've recently had um, we just had a very contentious election cycle for the county prosecutor here. And although the person who was more progressive didn't win her campaign, really pushed the main um, the like the career prosecutor here to be a little bit more liberal and a little bit more progressive with some of her policies. And we're seeing changes for the criminal defense bar that are being more helpful. Um, one of the things that we're seeing changes in in a couple counties here are like the, reduction, the reduction or elimination of cash bail. So not making there be a monetary you know, qualifier on whether or not you're going to be uh, incarcerated pre-trial or not. Right, which has a huge, I mean, from a criminal defense standpoint, there's a huge difference between your clients that can work with you and facilitate their own defense as opposed to someone who is being incarcerated prior to prior to trial. It's a totally different, um, totally different aspect. They receive harsher sentences if they're uh, detained awaiting trial, um, all of these different factors. There are some really good opinions coming out about jury selection and jury veneers. So we're getting appellate opinions about that. Um, they're re rehashing or redesigning our indigent defense system here. Um, a New York project opened up a chapter in Detroit for a much more comprehensive uh, indigent defense office here. So I think there are some really great things happening. We also in Wayne County, which is where Detroit is located, we've had a lot of uh, wrongful conviction cases come out in recent years through DNA testing and, and other things like that um, from, you know, cases that were in the 90s or before, before DNA evidence was a thing. And we just created a conviction integrity unit that now reviews cases um, from past decades to see like, was there enough evidence? Was the conviction reliable? Should it be overturned now? Um, so I think that long arc is bending the right way, but it's still criminal defense work isn't for the faint of heart. You have to get used to losing a lot, even when <laughs> you think you don't deserve to. Yeah, I was talking to Bob Levant earlier on. In fact, I, he, he was in the show and we spoke about this. Uh, there was a South African uh, member of the bar who, who wrote these words in his book. He said, legal practice was never meant to be easy. Obviously, it's not for the faint-hearted. And uh, that's the kind of experience that you, you get when you, you do practice. But I want us to hop on to something else here. Uh, your, it has been said in legal palace that justice should not only be done, but it should manifest or be seen to be done. As you hear people in the community, do they feel like the courts are serving their purpose at a court of justice? I would say no. I would say no. Um, I, think, I think there's a huge access to justice issue first and foremost, and I see that almost more in, in a civil nature than I do in a criminal nature. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things that I really learned from, so I worked in a police department 
in undergrad and part of law school and I worked in a really low income neighborhood. And one of the things that I, I saw really early on that it's still to this day, my favorite legal issue, as much as I love evidence, um, fifth amendment issues are my favorite issues. I'm obsessed with wrongful confession cases, um, coerced confessions, all of that. I'm just absolutely fascinated by it. And I grew up in a really, um, not incredibly affluent, but affluent enough upper middle class white neighborhood and went and worked in a very diverse, uh, low income neighborhood and was really surprised. Cause I would have expected the, uh, the relationship between the community members and the police department to be one of like street smarts, wise, non-cooperative, non-trusting, very much like F the police, right? That's what I would have assumed. And antagonistic and just like everyone knows that you're on opposite sides. That's what I would have expected. Being ignorant and, and, and never having experienced that like culture before. And what I saw when I worked there, and this is me, like, I, I'm feeling like I'm getting the behind the scenes look, right? Because since I was eight, I want to do criminal defense work. Now I'm working for a police department. So I'm seeing things that I never expected to see and really getting, you know, a look into the other team's playbook is how I, is how I felt at the time. But I would see people confess to crimes and I just didn't understand why I'm like, oh, I would have thought like the F the police mentality would have been like, oh, just don't shut up. Don't say anything. When they ask you questions, ask for a lawyer, you know, you never explain, never make a statement, never do any, like just lawyer up immediately and keep your mouth shut. And what I learned was that I don't care where you're from, but unless like you're really involved in like hardcore, like drug trafficking, you know, gang violence where like you're you're in the game and you know what the program is that people default to trusting police we're all taught that from the youngest age possible that like when you are in trouble you can rely on police officers so when people get questioned if you're alone in an eight by eight room and it's one of the reasons that the client the 26 year conviction is still incarcerated um there's he went and spoke with the police and his statement, in my opinion, wasn't given voluntarily, and I don't think it's truthful um, what was recorded. But seeing so many people go in to make a statement, thinking they can explain what happened. I saw self-defense cases that felt like in my gut, heart of hearts, felt like a self-defense case that ended up turning into a murder one conviction, first degree murder. And I'm like, that was self-defense. What are you talking about? But they go in and they explain and they end up making a statement that's against their interests. So it was such an incredible opportunity for me to see that. And then also how people get caught up in a system. So you would see people get ticketed for speeding. And then they don't have the money to pay the court costs. So they don't show up for court. Or they can't show up for court because they can't take the time off of work because they'll lose their job anyways. And they need the job to pay the court fines, but they don't go. Then there's a bench warrant out for their arrest. Then they get pulled over again. Now their license is suspended and they get arrested again. Now they have a misdemeanor and they get, then they don't have the money to pay that fine either. So 
people will collect like 10 driving while license suspended misdemeanor citations and their fines are in the thousands of dollars at that point, which they can never get out from under. But we live in, I live in the motor city. We don't have mass transit here. So you have to have a car in order to get anywhere, in order to work, in order to do anything. And I think those are the situations where do I think courts are serving people by having this fee structure that really like if you're white and you're affluent, then of course you can pay it. And it's not, it's not a problem. But if you don't have that privilege, then you're, you're at a deficit and it becomes one that you really can't get out of. So like traffic, traffic citations, traffic court things that aren't necessarily criminal, um, but can become criminal over time, depending how courts handle them. I just, I don't think that's set up in a just way to, to really serve people in the long run. When I was talking with Bob and Robert Levant, yeah. I asked him this question, which might be interesting for, for you to answer. I was like, knowing from experience, in order to be a good criminal defense attorney, you have to be streetwise. <laughs> you have to understand the language of the people in the streets, yeah. people who commit crimes. Has that been true for you too? For sure. For sure. I, I will say more than anything, I, I read people well. So I bartended for years, years and years and years. And people that drink in bars tend to be the ones that get in a little bit more trouble than the people that are at home by eight o'clock on a Friday night, right? And I really, I love, I love people, but I loved getting to know like the truth about people and really seeing them at their best, their worst and otherwise. But I, friends of mine joke with me on a case. I can tell who in like out of all of the information, out of all of the witnesses, I can read through text messages. I'm like, oh, he's sleeping with her. They're to get, and people are like, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh no, they're together. Just like, wait for it go through like the images shared back and forth. But like, there's a relationship here. People don't talk like that. People don't have that call frequency unless this is going on. Um, it's really served me well, just at life experience, all of the odd jobs that I thought would never become relevant. Um, I feel like every single job I've had from the time I was 14 to the time that I started working in a law firm became so important as far as just understanding how people relate to one another, how things work, um, how relationships work and being able to predict people or understand like their motivation uh, behind cases. So it, it's come out multiple times where I've been like, oh, they're sleeping together. And that like knowing that gives us some insight on like what's going on and who's lying about what. And it'll come out and people are like, how did you know? I'm like, I just always know. I just always see the nefarious activity going on, you know, behind the scenes or having worked in like having worked in the police department in a low income neighborhood of like just understanding how com people communicate with one another, what their life is like more so than I would have otherwise. I think people really discount these. It wasn't a glamorous experience, right? It wasn't some prestigious law firm that I was working at or some other prestigious job or a really important internship with a judge. Like I did that. I learned nothing when I worked for a judge. Uh, the, the information that's been really beneficial is exposing me to different communities that I, I didn't grow up within um, learning about 
people from different walks of life and different experiences than my own, even being able to understand like lingo, I would transcribe, you know, witness interviews and a lot of the people that are getting, you know, interviewed by police in the cases that I would work on, they don't speak like me, right? They have different slang words that I've had to learn from, I worked at the prosecutor's office when I was really young, I was 19. And one of the first jobs, it was from one of like this, she's a powerhouse. She still works for the prosecutor's office doing homicide trials. And she was so intimidating. Like she spoke to me one day and I was like, you like catch your breath. Like, oh my God, she's talking to me. Um, look out. And she looked at me and you weren't allowed to work on homicide cases if you weren't in law school. But I guess she had given this tape for, to other people to transcribe and everyone had screwed it up. And she looked at me, she goes, can you transcribe something for me? I've heard good things about you. I heard you do good work. And I was like, yeah, I, I can just, I can transcribe it for you. And she's like, don't take it if you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and she's like, when I say verbatim, I mean verbatim, we clear? And I'm like, there was Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, verbatim means verbatim. I was terrified. And I remember I listened it was like an hour and a half long uh, recording. It was the mother of uh, a young man who had been charged with shooting a classmate like outside of the school. And the mom had been accused of like popping the hood of her trunk where he grabbed the gun from. So she was a co-defendant. Um, and she was so... She is so much slang. It was so hard for me. I just kept having to rewind and rewind and rewind. And I did it for, like for days, but I finally every, she's like, I don't want to see one unintelligible, like, you know, inaudible, not able to, she's like verbatim means verbatim. I better not see any spots. And it was really challenging for me, but that experience when I ended up doing criminal defense work, there was so much lingo that I understood that I would have never understood before that. I'm like, oh, I got this, I can do this. So it all builds on top of each other. Yeah, I, I think it was Winter Wheeler who spoke yeah. about the same thing that she had that gift to be able to understand the lingo and then living in the communities. I think that's a very important aspect because without that, you might be the cause of injustices in the court because you won't get uh, uh, to understand the story of your client. Like I was saying to, we, we agreed with Winter, that you know you find yourself representing the wrong client it's not the guy that you are really representing you have a different case altogether before yeah. the judge and that may cause a serious injustice no totally um i worked with she's no longer with us she passed a couple years ago um she was the police lieutenant and even just as something in the police department that i worked for her name was Deborah Price. She had like the biggest heart, best personality. I loved this woman so, so much. She ended up becoming chief of police before she passed. But we worked in the same office together and she would say stuff to me. She's like, cut the radio on. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. And she's like, turn it on. And I'm like, cut? Like, that's a thing, like cut it on. And she's like, yeah, cut it on, cut it off. And like, it's small stuff like that, right? But rather than being ignorant later in life, when I would work on cases, I'm like, oh, I can just keep up with everyone. Um, and just knowing a different, different dialogue that people are having. She used to make fun of, she's like, you're so cute. Because <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. But yeah, just small things like that. Now, now, of course, it doesn't, I don't skip a beat with it. But 
Like just to close the practice loop, you hated it when you joined the big law in Detroit. <laughs> Tell us about that. Hated it. <laughs> so I was working at the criminal defense firm in law school. And one of the things that I've come to know is that just because you're a really great attorney doesn't mean you're a great business owner. And that was the case for the man that I worked for. Uh, really to know, like, I don't have any, like, ill will or place really any much blame there. Uh, he's never learned how to do it, right? Attorneys who start their own firms kind of become accidental entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. uh, they have, you know, this mission that he was a prosecutor for 15 years, and then he left to start his own practice. And you're a great attorney. You just don't know how to run a business. And he's still to this day, bless his heart, really hasn't learned and has a lot of bad practices. And it caused a lot of cash flow issues there. So there was a lot of financial insecurity and instability. And to go backwards, right? Bought a house when I was 20. I've been on my own since I was 18. No one wants to support the lifestyle of my two cats uh, other than me. So, you know, they expect me to bring home the bacon and make sure every the electricity's on and everything's fine here. So I really started to get nervous towards the end of law school about the financial instability, about, you know, the highs and the lows. And, uh, also had that very much like echoed or parroted in my ear from my parents. Like, are you sure this is what you want to do? I don't know. This seems a little risky. And when things got really bad at the firm that I was at, I, it was r right at the same time that on-campus interviews were available. So I knew I didn't want to do civil law and I had never even thought of working in big law. And I was like, well, I'll, I should just go out and apply and then I can make the decision. And I went out, I went and did on-campus interviews. I got a ton of callback interviews. And I ended up getting an offer from the best firm in Detroit. And to make a really bad godfather reference here, it was the offer I couldn't refuse. And it was way more money than I would have made uh, at the criminal defense firm. It was way more money than I would have made at any other big firm in Detroit. It was a ton of money. It was a lot of prestige. And I just caved. And very, everyone that I knew had an opinion about me going there and everyone wanted me to accept it. And of course that was like the responsible thing to do and the sensible thing to do. Like the only problem is that I just didn't want to practice civil law at all. And I kind of lied to myself a little bit. I'm like, oh, they do like some white collar stuff. You know, it'll be okay. You'll learn some things. You can do it for a while and then you can go back to working at the firm. I always knew that I was going to go back to the criminal defense firm. Um, and like, I would go for a couple of years, get it on my resume, get the experience. And now I just give younger students such different advice. I, I focus on one of the things that a friend of mine asked me, he goes, what makes you the best lawyer at the end of the day? Staying where you're at or going there? And I was like, oh, that's a great question. I was like going there, going to big law. And now I tell other people something a little bit different. I ask them to ask themselves, what makes you the best lawyer that you want to be at the end of the day? Because I got better at civil litigation. The only problem is that I didn't want to do civil litigation at all. So I built, I grew a skill set 
that I didn't have any interest in practicing or growing. So I can't even say that it really served me in the long run, as opposed to spending that time doubling down on criminal defense and becoming better at that. So I summered there, I accepted a full-time offer, and then I started. And I think this happens to a lot of people. It happens to a lot of my clients now is that once they start their career, like once you make the decision to go to law school, so many decisions in a row are already made for you, right? You know what tests you have to take, you know what you have to do, you have to apply, you have to get in, then you go through law school, maybe get an internship, but like it's all laid out for you. And then you get into your career and like, it's, it's like you've run out of paved road. So you have to start figuring out a new what you want to do. And then the older you are, time scarcity starts to get in your mind a little bit about like, you don't want to make the wrong choice. So you kind of have like competing belief systems uh, and you don't want anything. You don't want to lose much, right? You don't want to lose the salary. You don't want to lose. So like your opportunities get narrower and narrower and narrower. So I really had kind of a crisis moment. I'm like, you're just here for the foreseeable future. And you made this decision and you don't really want to be here. Like, how did all of this happen? And I was really in denial. I was really victim-y. I had like a victim mindset about like, oh, people around me didn't understand what I was passionate about. They really forced me to take this job. I was just really feeling sorry for myself. And back to my mom and I being so close, I was really mad at her. I felt like she forced me to take the job. And I decided that I wanted to start my own business. I was, I say entrepreneurs have to be like a tidge bit delusional in order to take the risk and put themselves out there. Luckily I was. Uh, so I decided I wanted to start my own business while I was working full-time in big law, build a business that was successful enough to bankroll and replace my big law salary. And then I was going to leave big law, go back to the firm that I worked at, run my successful business, and then also work full-time at my old law firm. All of which at this point in my life, I'm like, you were insane. None of that would have worked. Uh, there just aren't enough hours in the day. But at the time I was delusional enough to think that I would be able to do that. And Thank goodness, because I started embarking on just consuming as much entrepreneurial content as I possibly could to learn how to build whatever this business was going to be. And while I was doing that, I stumbled upon an interview with a woman who had worked with a life coach. And this woman had really had like the trajectory, the career trajectory that I was in the middle of. She had taken a job for kind of all the wrong reasons. She wasn't passionate about it, really didn't love it, and kind of had this epiphany, wanted to create her own thing, and then had left, done that, been really successful. So I'm like, this woman's done exactly what I want to do. I should probably listen to what she has to say. And she had worked with this woman, and she explained she doesn't take one-on-one, -on -one, this coach doesn't take one-on-one -on -one clients anymore, but she has an amazing podcast. I highly recommend everyone listen to it. And I was like, oh, this person did exactly what I want to do. I should probably follow her lead. So she turned me on to the Life Coach School podcast with Brooke Castillo. And the first episode I listened to, I have a saying that what you need to hear has a way of finding you if your ears are open and you're willing to listen. And the first episode of hers that I listened to was about how everything that I had in my life that I didn't care for, all of the things you have, all of the things that you don't have are results of choices you've made. None of it has just happened to you. 
but that we choose everything that we have or don't have in our lives. And that was a huge wake up call for me. That was the wake up call of like, you chose this out of fear of the unknown. You chose this for financial security. You chose a lot of stuff that you aren't passionate about, knew in your gut weren't right for you based on what other people thought and fear. And I didn't love those reasons for being where I was. So that was a huge wake up call. I had to own all of the decisions that I had made that had led me to pursuing a career that I wasn't passionate about. And then I started to really dive deeper into that work and start to pull it apart and really understand why that was, why I was so hungry or concerned about other people's approval, as opposed to following my gut, doing what was right, what I knew in my heart was right for me, what I was passionate about. And from that point on, I just became obsessed with coaching. I was like, this is the coolest stuff in the world. Everyone needs to know about it. And then I started to see how optional my suffering was and thereby looking around me, seeing all of my colleagues that were around me or all of my friends around me who all had their own different levels of discomfort or dissatisfaction in their life. I just started to see how optional it all was. And I was like, I feel like I'm learning the secrets to the universe and no one else knows. So I became really obsessed with coaching and pretty soon after decided that I wanted to pursue that. So I embarked on that career. So one of your philosophies is uh, you say, I never go backwards. Mm. That's one of your philosophies. <laughs> How is yeah. that you? <laughs> How is that rolled out in your life? Because uh, I'm sure there are times where you're forced to go back and do something that you did before. For instance, you, you went into big law and somehow you didn't like it. You had to go back to criminal law. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've broken that rule twice and mm. I've regretted it both times. Um, so our, we like to romanticize what was before, right? And we think what, one of the things that I've really learned, the ground shifts while you're gone, like tectonic plates under the earth's surface. You, you can't even see it visually, but like the earth moves. So everyone looks the same and you think it's going to be the same, but you be, you've become a different person since you've had different experiences. So have they, so when you come back, your expectation is that it will be like it once was, and it just can't be, that's not how it works. So I left a bar that I worked at and I went back when I was younger and it was very different. And it was such a great experience when I was there the first time. And it just wasn't the same the second time. Um, I, I just don't love that I went back. Um, I would say it wasn't the right call, even though I, I made it and I moved forward with. It was just never the same level of content. It just always felt a li little off kilter, a little mismatched. I feel the same way about going back to the criminal defense practice. I'm glad that I did it because I got it out of my system. I know that the person that I became in between leaving and going back I know that I'm never supposed to work for someone again. Like I know that in my, in my soul, I'm meant to be self-employed. I am too opinionated and too much of a problem solver to sit by and watch someone else do it the way that I think is the wrong way and not be open to critiques or suggestions or implementing different ideas, especially like 
as far as legal tech goes, I'm really into legal tech. I think there's all these amazing tools that you can implement into a practice to make it more modern, more streamlined, more efficient. Um, and that there was a lot of resistance to that. I just, I have a very different way of like marketing, old school marketing to me, uh, as far as, you know, legal services go like a print ad in a, in a magazine or a newspaper is bananas to me. We live in the world of social media. Why you would spend money on advertisement like that is beyond me. I don't think it gets you. Criminals aren't reading like Detroit legal news. So, right. Other lawyers in Detroit are reading that, not your ideal client that you're hoping will hire you. Those people are on Facebook uh, or Instagram, things like that for the most part. So I just had very, I was very opinionated. I had a lot of ideas and came back to an environment that really wasn't open to implementing them. They kind of had a system that worked for them, even though I didn't think that it was working because there was still the financial instability and the highs and lows and cash flow problems. And I, I had a lot of suggestions on ways to fix that. And I really came to a point where I realized that they, they didn't want the suggestions. And at that point I had to coach myself on, I could sit there and complain about it and want them to be different, which I tell my clients this all the time. We can't control other people as much as we want them to be different. We can't. So I was back to the same thing that the realization I had with big law, like I'm choosing this, right? I'm choosing to come here every day, even though I don't like it. Why? I had to have that conversation with myself a second time when I went back to the criminal defense firm. I'm choosing this. It's dysfunctional. And, you know, my first reaction was like, well, they can't do this. They need to run it differently. They need to run it better. They need to make these changes. And I really came back to the, the point of like, actually, I'm wrong. They don't have to do it any differently. They get to do it exactly this way because it's their business. They run it. I don't. And they get to do it this way. Even if I think it's wrong, they get to choose it. And I get to choose to not choose it. But for me to stay and complain, I'm just causing my own suffering there. So I really had to have that coachable moment, you know, hard look in the mirror. And I, I decided to leave. Well, let's talk about your inspiration. The people that inspire you. The people that have uh, been so uh, brought so much motivation to you, you look up to, and they have uh, given you the energy that you all they contribute to the energy that you always have. Yeah, what a great question. Um, so my two coaches, by far, um, my coach Brooke Castillo. I she's just totally transformed my life on the concepts she's taught me things I've learned from her. And then I also have um, a business coach. Her name's Stacy Bayman. And both of those women together have really changed my, my belief and really anything that I had ever seen on, on what's possible for women as far as um, the ability to create their own wealth, uh, their ability to create a life really on their own terms, um, the structure that they want. I think one of the things is I've built my own business uh, coming up against limiting beliefs from people around me of like, oh, you just can't do it that way. 
my dad's very old school and he owns a business. So he's entrepreneurial too, but he, you know, I work from home. He thinks that's bananas. <laughs> and when I left my last firm, you know, I, I was willing, I made a deal with myself. I said, you're going all in on you pumpkin. Like this is it. I knew I never wanted to work for someone ever again. I knew that I was willing to struggle as long as it took in order for me to start getting traction and to start making it because I knew at that, like if we were comparing five years working for someone else versus five years of me working for myself, I knew at the end of five years working for someone else, I'd still have the same lack of control over my financial stability, my, you know, trajectory as far as success goes. And I would never have any, any more control really over the end result than I did starting out. Whereas compared to myself, it's, I figured it would be more struggle in the immediate future that it would take longer and that it would be harder and more challenging and more difficult, all of that. But at the end of that five years, I was like, I'll push all my chips in the middle. I'll, I'll go all in on me. I know that I'm dedicated. I know that I'm resilient enough to weather the storm. It'll probably be really uncomfortable, but at the end of five years, I'll be in control. And I figured I'd go further going all in on me rather than relying on, on someone else for that stability. So while I was doing that, like not everyone was very supportive of it. Right. So I came up against limiting beliefs, like, especially for my dad, he's like, you just have to go work for someone. I was like, I sure don't. And he's like, that's just what you do. Like, that's how life works. I'm like, that's so funny that you say that you work for yourself. So I don't know why the rules are different for me, but really seeing strong, powerful women uh, create an extreme amount of wealth relatively quickly uh, has been something that's been so eye-opening and transformative as far as what I see possible and seeing examples of something that can be created like that, where you work from home and can be an entrepreneur and become really successful and offer a ton of value to the world and serve a, a huge number of people, but really do it on your own terms. It very much challenged that model for me of exchanging time for money and having to consistently work harder in order to ever become more successful was a huge shift for me. So Brooke Castillo and Stacey Bayman, I am so grateful that I learned of both of them and have been able to really learn from them in addition to learning of them. So those two people, who else? Um, Another coach-like figure, but Tony Robbins um, is a big one. Um, one of the things that, uh, so I struggled with Adderall addiction while I was working in big law. And one of the things that I learned from him, um, I want to say I went to Unleash the Power Within in March 2019. And one of the things that he said while I was there at UPW was the quote, if you can't, you must. And I always felt like that with Adderall. I felt like I couldn't live without it. That was really like out of all of the things um, in my life, that was my biggest, I can't. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, it was like stuck in the back of my head. If you can't, you must, if you can't, you must, if you can't, you must. And I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I finally decided to, to do it and to quit and to just eliminate that from my life, uh, which I did just over a year ago. And that's been a, 
monumentally life improving step that I took. So Tony Robbins, Brooke Castillo and Stacey Bayman are probably my biggest influences. Yeah, I'm just thinking about Tony Robbins' book, The Unleashing the Power of the Thing. I think it's a oh. quite a big book, about 400 pages or 500 pages. It oh. sounds like you are a reader. What is your goal for a book, your most imp uh, uh, crucial or important book that you, you love out of all those that you have read? Yeah, if I had to pick one, um, I would pick Love Warrior by Glennon Doyle. She mm. authored Untamed last year, which was hugely successful, but most people who read Untamed never read Love Warrior. And I stumbled on Love Warrior in 2017. Um, it was listed on Oprah's book club list at the time, mm. and Oprah raved about it. Uh, so I read it. And Untamed is phenomenal. I devoured Untamed last year. I think it came out like right when the pandemic started and I read the entire thing in bed, like in a day, I just couldn't put it down. But Untamed, or uh, I'm sorry, Love Warrior was so transformational for me because it was the first time I'd ever been told or encountered the concept of embracing discomfort of because we're really taught from a young age to avoid it in any way shape or form anytime discomfort comes walk the other way right and what i've started to see and like you'll see this with tony's writings and anyone else in the personal development space they're all saying a different variant of the same thing which oh is yeah to embrace, i agree which is to embrace discomfort right discomfort's going to come and if you really want this limitless life if you want to unlock the gates to success, it's to lean into the discomfort, to embrace it, to not run from it, to really move through it instead. And the first time that I had ever encountered that principle was when I read Love Warrior by Glennon Doyle. And I would say that is the first bit of personal development literature that I had ever read. And really, I think started like it piqued an interest in my brain, I guess, because I haven't been able to shortly thereafter, I found out about Brooke and coaching and then Tony and all of these other people. <sighs> so it really started a, a chain reaction as far as my, my interests with this subject matter. But I, I credit Glennon. I would say second, this is a really unknown book, I think. Um, although it is picking up popularity, there's a book called We Are the Luckiest by Laura McCowan. And it's a sobriety memoir, mm -hmm. but it's even for people that aren't struggling with, you know, addiction of addiction. any kind. Um, it is one of the most candid things I've ever read. And I, I, my personal thesis or philosophy is that truth is the antidote to shame. And I really love reading about anyone who's willing to be that candid and that honest and that transparent about their, their struggle as a, in their human experience. And it's one of the more beautiful things that I've, I've read. I'd say love warriors, probably first, we are the luckiest is either tied for second or third, probably with untamed also by Glennon Doyle. So let's talk about failure. Aristocles attributed with these words. There are many ways of missing a target but there's only one of hitting it. Failure can make us, you know, second guess ourselves, our strengths, our capacities, our ability to do, to win. 
you know, obviously failure, it's not falling down, but it is the same down that is really failure. And um, I just want to find out as far as failure is concerned, can you share with us uh, the moments where you felt like you have failed and uh, things were not going well? I know that this is a case of vulnerability. Yeah, that's, it's almost hard for me to think of because one of like the main concepts or tenets that I really uh, subscribe to is that failure is always a thought. It's not factual. Um, so I, I constantly tell my clients this and, and tell myself this, you're either learning or winning. You're either learning or winning. So I have less than a handful of regrets. Um, and I really don't see anything that I've done as a failure. I see it as an experience that I, that I learned from. Um, if anything. So I'm trying to think of a time where I think that I've failed at something, but I, I struggle to think, I mean, there are things that I would have done differently maybe. Um, but I don't, I don't take it as a failure. I think that it all has to happen the way that it's supposed to happen. Um, I'm trying to think, I would say something that I would do differently. It's not a regret that I have, but I do it differently. Um, this is very much on a personal, uh, level would be, I spent a long time in a relationship, uh, a personal relationship that was really unfulfilling to me. And I chose it out of convenience and comfort. And it was real at the time I was so focused on law school and so focused on my career that it was easy to tolerate something that I knew wasn't working. And I wish I hadn't devoted as much time as I did to it. I think it had to happen the way that it, it played out, but in hindsight, I, I see the reasons I chose that, and I don't love my reasons for choosing that for as long as I did. I once read a book, in fact, it comes out of Africa, the old teaching uh, by a man. Uh, his name is Hemos Trismegistus. He's okay. um, yeah, from him come, has come out what is known as the Hematic teachings. And he speaks about the seven laws of the universe, the law of gender, the law of mentality, the law of reading, the law of polarity, the law of uh, vibration, and other laws, about seven of them. So the law of reading, basically what it's about, is just about, you know, ebb and flow, the ebb and flow of life. Sometimes you wake up with a, a very low down mood. Sometimes you're all pumped up, you're ready to fire up. Sometimes you feel defeated and uh, despondent, so yes, it's feeling of ambivalency and all that. I'm sure you have uh, such feelings where you feel like you are a failure, you feel like things are not just going okay. The despondence that I'm talking about here, how, when you experience those, how do you deal with those? Yeah, so very much a, sort of in the way that you just mentioned of like knowing that it's an ebb and flow. Mm -hmm. I was just talking to a friend of mine, another coach before we spoke today, and we were talking about this, of how it's so different once you, I feel like I've learned at this point in my life that like nothing's gone wrong when that happens. Like I'll notice like, oh, you're in a funk. Oh, to, like you're not, last week you were flying high on top of the world. Everything was great. You felt invincible. This week, not so much. What's going on? But I know to expect that like almost it's cyclical nature mm -hmm. of belief 
where it's really high one moment and then you get in your head and you, you know, aren't as confident and you're second guessing yourself or you just don't feel as, as capable or, you know, what have you, I know to expect that now. And I'm like, Oh, we're just in that point of like the, the circle, like this is the low part, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to pass. It's going to be fine. We'll see how long this, you know, this wave, you know, comes over and crashes down upon us kind of sets us back, but I know to expect it. And I always know that it's going to pass. So that's one, just like talking to myself, like nothing's going wrong here. This is okay. This is to be expected. It's going to happen from time to time. Cause I know some people are like, I thought I was doing great. And they just really don't expect to dip back down. I'm like, Oh, we're dipping. Got it. Understood. We're on the same page. Like got the memo. This is a dip. So I know to expect that. The other thing though, is that I really am mindful of my inputs. And this is something that I really recognize when I, when I talk to other people, especially my clients and they start to dip, I'm like, what have you been listening to? What, what are you consuming? And I just had this conversation with a client of mine. She was like, oh, I, well, I listened to this podcast and it was like a really negative podcast about like relationships and how like everything like in her relate, it was just, it was not good. So she's like, well, I binged 30 episodes of that. And then I went on Instagram and I scrolled for like five hours, which was like a bunch of negative stuff. So I'm like, okay, so 30 episodes of a negative podcast and then five hours of negative social media, you know, coming at you, either people complaining or like doom scrolling, you know, things about politics in the world, whatever. Just spiral okay. down. Correct. So I have another client who she would start to get like worried about like illness or like bad things happening to, you know, people around her. And then she'd hear a story about some terrible thing that happened to someone else. And then she would research that and find out how common it is and like, look up more and like just spiral. Right. Mm -hmm. So I know not to do that. So when I start to feel myself like dip down and start to get into that funk, maybe I'll give it a day or so, but if it's going to last, if I feel like, Oh, this is kind of here to stay. I'm like, all right, what are your go-tos? So I have a couple people that I listen to religiously that like just make me, set me on fire. Um, Brooke Castillo is one of them. There are other podcasts or I'm not religious at all, but there is a uh, Baptist preacher on YouTube that I listen to his sermons. I love like the cadence of his voice. I think he's such a powerful speaker. Um, I find that really inspirational and motivating. Like, so I consume anything that is really uplifting, um, anything that makes me laugh. So I'm really intentional about it. I'm not going to dive into the deep end of the misery pool once I start to dip down, which I notice is other people's natural like instinct response is they're like, oh, I'll double down on feeling awful. And then they're like, I don't understand why a week later I still feel miserable. Where I'm very much like, okay, none of this. We're going to listen to, so I'll, you know, listen to three podcast episodes back to back from Brooke or listen to some Tony Robbins or listen to TD Jakes on YouTube or something that really just gets me kind of lights my fire in terms of inspiration and motivation and feeling powerful and in control. I really make it my natural instinct response. I'm like, we're feeling low. We got to do this. Whether or not I feel like it at the time, I'm like, this isn't optional. This is what you do when you start to dip down. 
it, it seems like it's an exercise of the willpower because that's one of the things that I've learned about this law. Those who are masters, you know, they use a higher law to overcome a lower law. The law of reading is a lower law, but the law of the will, which we are all gifted with, all human beings have, you are able to rise above this and say, oh, I'm feeling this way. I'm feeling low. Let me do something that will pick me up. We are different than animals. We've got all these endowments that animals uh, don't have, and one of them is the independent will. So it's fascinating how people can exercise, decide to think. I think that's one of the things that uh, you talk about, uh, thoughts leading to feelings, feelings to action, and all this stuff. I can see just behind you, circumstances, thought, feeling, action, result. But we will speak about that in our next episode. I hope you'll be able to have an episode where we just drill deep into uh, that motivational uh, stuff. So uh, I, I'm fascinated by the use of the wheel. I remember words of James Allen, a writer of uh, As a Man Think It. It's just a small volume with 27 pages or something. I read it this year. It was phenomenal. Oh, really? <laughs> you read one of the best books. I don't know why you didn't mention it. <laughs> I, I almost, it's funny. I almost did. Um, I met a man earlier this year and we were, oh, he had asked me about the model behind my head and uh, we got to talking. So I was explaining it to him on how thoughts cause feeling. He was like, oh, you have to read As a Man Thinketh. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I've never heard of it. He goes, you're going to love it. And I devoured it, of course. And I reached back out to him and I was like, you were right. This is literally like a hundred year old version of what I teach now to all of my clients. He's like, I knew it would be spot on for you. So we, I did, I learned about that um, towards the end of the summer, as a matter of fact, and it's on the, on my nightstand next to my bed. So that's, oh, that's right there too. Yeah, I, I studied that. I still go back to study that book. I remember uh, about the will, he says the human will that force unseen, the offspring of a deadless soul can hew away to any goal, though walls of granite intervene. And I'm sure you have had the opportunity where they, there appears to be walls of granite, but you have to exercise your will, you know, these unseen human aspects, and you're able to break through the mountains that are in front of you and achieve the goal that you want to achieve. But um, we don't have all the time of, in the world. I, I know it seems like you and I are vibrating at the same wavelength. Uh -huh. We can go on forever. I've got a lot that I want us to talk about. But... I have just one last question just to close yeah. this up. Um, there are a lot of young girls out there uh, who may say, wow, uh, I, I wish I can be like Olivia. Uh, I, I wonder what it takes to get up there. What kind of advice do you have for them in a time where, you know, you can't confirm much today when you think life is going this way, things are changing. All of a sudden there is a virus and there is something else and the economy is down and all that. What kind of advice do you have for them in order to fare well in life? So one of the things that I tell everyone that I meet, especially anyone with younger kids, so this is to the young girls, is work. Work in all the unglamorous jobs, collect that life experience. No one can take it from you. And it really teaches you a different level of resilience. I know for the rest of my life, I have skills that I can fall back on and I'm not too proud to do anything. Like if I had to, I would go 10 bar again. I know that that's a skill set that I'll have till the day that I die. I'm good at it. And 
no matter, obviously now is probably not the time to do that because restaurants and a lot of places are closed, but I can practice law. So building, you know, an arsenal of different skill sets where you always have something to fall back on, I think is really important. Don't be afraid of working. Don't be afraid of unglamorous work. I've done a lot of unglamorous jobs uh, over the years and I'm grateful for all of them. They've all put me in the exact right position eventually because I've picked up something along the way from every single one that I've been able to leverage at a different point in my life. So rather than worrying about what looks good on paper, I'd say the, the two things that I did that looked good on paper, working in big law and interning for a federal judge were the two things that I got the least amount of value from ultimately. Uh, the, the things that were a little bit unseemly or a little bit gritty or a little less prestigious are really the things that gave me um, the best lessons and the most value overall. So that's one. Two um, would be to take consistent action. And we'll, you and I will touch upon this, I think a little bit next time too, because it's such a mindset mm-hmm. component, but I, when in my younger years, I would get a really good idea because I've always been entrepreneurial, but I would get started on something and then I wouldn't get the immediate results that I was hoping to get. And my belief would drop down. My belief would fade and I would lose steam and I'd stop showing up consistently in whatever, you know, the goal that I was trying to accomplish. And I'd eventually distract myself with something else and I'd switch the goal, but I wouldn't get to that ultimate result that I was hoping to create. And this was in different businesses, businesses that I had started and, you know, different ideas that I had had. And I really, what's different about what I'm doing now is at the beginning of this, I just decided to take quitting off the table and I decided to be as uncomfortable as this endeavor, this, you know, this business of mine required and it required networking, which I used to hate to do and meeting people and talking to people that didn't know me, which like, it was just like vomit for me. I just hated all of it. I'm like, no one wants to talk to me. They're going to think I'm weird and awkward and really deciding that I was willing to feel all the negative emotions in order to accomplish the results. And I just decided if I keep showing up consistently and I decide to not quit, my success will become inevitable. So to anyone out there with a goal, just decide not to quit. Ask yourself, how would I approach this if I couldn't quit? And I think when you see side by side, like where you can contemplate quitting versus just not being able to quit, not being able to quit is so much less dramatic of an experience. You're like, all right, it's just time to go to work. We show up every day. We do this one thing over and over and over again on repeat. And that level of consistency and commitment, um, I think makes people unstoppable. So that's my advice to them. Thank you so much, Olivia, for your advice and for all the wonderful things that you have shared with our listeners. Your experience is, is vast and you, have been so generous and answering every question and making sure that what goes into the record is valuable for our listeners. Thank you for coming through. But I want to close this by saying how, maybe asking the question, how do people find you? People can find me on one of two places. My website, thelessstresslawyer.com, but really go to LinkedIn. Uh, I'm there under Olivia Vizacaro and all of my content starts there. 
So I post almost every day, uh, but all of my original content starts there. And I also do a monthly webinar series for free where I teach different coaching concepts. We'll talk a lot about that next time um, if you're willing to have me back. But oh, I, excellent. I can't wait for that. It'd be my pleasure. Thank you. Um, but I do a monthly webinar series. It's live. They're fun um, and they're super informative. I, I give all my good goodies away um, to the attendees there. And I post about that on LinkedIn too. So if people want to find out more about me, LinkedIn's definitely the place to go do that. Oh, again, thank you so much, Olivia, for coming through. My absolute pleasure. It was my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, have a great day. Bye. You too. Bye.